filmmakers always think that the way to get into Hollywood is to kind of like show you can do a Hollywood movie. So get a lot of money or do a short film for like $100,000. You know, that's happened. But more often than not, almost every time, if you look at any director you love, it's like Hitchcock made dozens and dozens and dozens of films that not a single person that I know could name before he was, you know, in his 50s. And he started doing Vertigo and Psycho and even Tarantino. It's like we think of him as this huge Hollywood director, but like he made tiny movies for years that were never released. You know, even Reservoir Dogs was like supposed to be a $30,000 movie. So everybody that we admire kind of started like this because they couldn't help it. They had to create art. And if you're creating excuses not to make art because you don't have money when in today's day and age you can make a, a movie basically for free if you want to with your phone and with your laptop then I think you have to ask yourself like why are you resisting creating when there is no barrier to entry anymore except for your own choice not to do it. Hey guys, I'm Arie. And I'm Christina. And we are your hosts at the Film Up Podcast, where we explore the stories of accomplished filmmakers and creatives in their road to success. Each podcast is dedicated to a nonprofit of our guest choosing. The goal here is for the Film Up Podcast to help filmmakers and help the world at the same time. And we believe you can do both. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Noam Kroll. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This has been something I've been looking forward to. So glad to be here. Well, thanks for being here. And before we get started, just wanted to share a little background on Noam. Noam Kroll is an award-winning narrative filmmaker, creative entrepreneur, and founder of the filmmaking podcast Show Don't Tell. And between his podcast and personal filmmaking blog, noamkroll.com, he has had millions of visitors tune in for his opinions and guests around the filmmaking world. His production company, Creative Rebellion, has produced content for brands like Google, Banana Republic, NBC Universal, among many others. Noam's also a huge supporter of the nonprofit Goats of Anarchy, which is a sanctuary for farmed animals with disabilities. So he is pairing his podcast episode with this organization. And you can learn more by going to goatsofanarchy.org. And as usual, we will share all the details in the description of this episode. Noam, thank you for being here. Again, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited <laughs> to jump in. And before we dive into all the filmmaking things, we'd love to learn about Goats of Anarchy and why you chose them as a nonprofit to support. Yeah, well, a couple of reasons. So um, on one side, I'm just a, a big, I've always been a, an animal person. I love animals um, in many different ways, I guess. Um, I try to kind of do what I can to uh reduce kind of like this suffering of animals and and kind of champion uh, the better treatment of animals, especially when it comes to factory farming and things like that. Goats of Anarchy is um, one in particular that's certainly not the biggest out there, but they kind of hit my radar um, a few years ago, actually just through Instagram, same as you guys. And, um, it, you know, it just seemed like what they were doing was so uh, great in terms of just like rescuing these different animals, goats being one of them, but others as well. And I think there's you know, so often it's easy just to say, okay, if we're going to support a charity, let's pick kind of the the biggest one that's, you know, whatever, that's already doing great things, which is cool too. But um, in this case, I just thought it would be nice to highlight one that is 
you know, relatively big, but nowhere near kind of some of the other organizations that are getting a lot more attention. So they're doing some good work. And hopefully if there are other people out there that are, you know, animal people like me, they'll, they'll uh, <laughs> look them up and, and maybe uh, give them some support as well. They're doing some great stuff. Wow, it's so cool. The power of Instagram, man. Yeah, it, uh, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it can connect some some pretty crazy worlds. Well, speaking of, you know, your world and what you're involved in, one of the ways we like to start this podcast off before talking about the successes you've had is going to the beginning. And what got you into filmmaking in the first place? Was this something you were always passionate about? Did you fall into it? What's that story? Honestly, I think the first... And I've never actually said this on a podcast because people have asked me this before. But when I really trace it back, I think it was Ace Ventura Pet Detective, funnily enough, with the theme <laughs> of animals. Um, I remember seeing that movie when I was like 10 and just thinking or like nine or whatever and thinking like this is this is so cool. Like, I didn't know you could do this with movies. And, you know, I became this big Jim Carrey fan. I wanted to go into acting. And then I just kind of kept uh, pursuing different um, facets of filmmaking, um, really initially from the perspective of like acting as a kid um, and just, you know, going to like drama classes and things like that. And eventually I got into, you know, I got an agent. I grew up in Toronto. And when I was like 13, I just like took the subway downtown and, you know, try to find an agent. I booked these commercials and TV movies and things like that. And then the more I did that through high school, I kind of realized I really want to be on the other side of the camera. So over time, I, uh, you know, I, I just started like making my own shorts when I was a teenager. And then like, at first, I would put myself in the films, and they were kind of a vehicle to act in something. And then by the time I was done, like I studied uh, psychology in university, just because while I was acting, there were some other directors I'd worked with that were actually pretty established. And a lot of them had given me the advice that, you know, you might actually not want to go to film school because you can learn something else that then you could bring to filmmaking and it'll give you a different perspective. So I sort of followed that advice and um, studied psychology. And by the time I was done, um, I was still making films, but I wasn't really all that interested in, in the acting component anymore. You know, I still kind of like to once in a while, like do something like take an acting class just for fun because I think it makes you a better director to understand how actors work but um but yeah so I got really into film and then I uh, you know, I was making shorts, I was working also in advertising, just basically freelancing on super low budget commercials and things like that, that I could direct or DP. And then I just kind of incrementally scaled things up and expanded them. And now, you know, it's like 15 years later, and I'm, I'm still doing it. And a lot of this, what I'm doing today is really rooted in what I was doing when I was like 20. But it's just, um, you know, kind of taken, you know, grown a little bit, you know, hopefully more than a little bit in some ways. And, and taken on a different uh, form. So when you saw Jim Carrey at like 12 years old, you were you pulled into the acting side of it and you were like, man, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Like you could be an you could be involved with animals and also be a comedian and also do acting. Totally. And at the time, I don't think I was like as animal crazy as I later became. So it was more just that it was a funny movie and I'd never seen something where I was like just front to back. I was just like in stitches. I could watch it over and over and I had the whole thing memorized. I still have have, like most of that movie memorized. Uh, and I've probably seen that more than anything. So I, I don't think like it was a moment where it clicked and I was like, oh, I have to do this. It was just, you know, when you're younger, like when you're a kid, you're 
curiosity works very differently than when you're an adult, because as a kid, uh, you don't like, you know, have to rationalize things and say, well, okay, I like this. So maybe I should try to figure out if I can make a career like this or that. It's just like, oh, like that was funny. I want to go and, you know, uh, kind of do some stupid stuff with my friends and and like, you know, reenact some of these scenes. And that's just kind of how it started. But Later on, I would say the moment where like I did have kind of I think the moment that you might be referring to is I was watching uh, Requiem for a Dream, which is like on the opposite end of genre. (laughs) But that was like, you know, like whenever ninth grade or whenever I saw that. And uh, I just again, it was one of those moments where similarly, I was like, I I didn't realize that you could, like, this could be a movie. I didn't realize you could do this sort of stuff. And, um, and that was kind of a point where I actually looked at and I said, maybe I should like go into filmmaking, not because I want to make movies exactly like this, but because you don't have to only make um, like Hollywood blockbuster movies, there are independent films, there's experimental, there's all these other genres. So that was definitely a, a defining moment as well. Wow. And so you knew that you wanted to start off with the acting path, but then as you went through it, you fell in love with the art of filmmaking itself and then started to pivot a little bit. Yeah. And I think in retrospect, the acting more than anything, it was I just didn't know even what a director was like I just you know if you're just a kid watching a movie you just think the actors are kind of like making it up and you know and you don't really piece together how it's put together so to you like the actors Mm -hmm. are the filmmakers but yeah once I learned more and you know I started getting on sets and I've mentioned this before I think on my own podcast but I remember like I did this a big national commercial and I walked on set and you know I was like 13 or 14 and it was just like all these like wires and gear and like, you know, cameras. And and I just walked on the set and I was like amazed by it. And and I just felt like if you get that feeling and someone said this to me a long time ago, and I, I always like remembered it. But if you get that feeling when you're on a set or even if you drive past a set and you see someone shooting and it like kind of, you know, puts a pit in your stomach, like that probably means you should be doing it. It's like there there's just some sort mm-hmm. of, you know, intangible, you know, experiential thing that you you might have where it clicks with you. And I had that through acting and I realized, oh, it's not even the acting part that I'm that into. That was just kind of a a vehicle to get me in the door. It's funny, kind of unrelated, but also related. Just speaking of Jim Carrey, he was one of the first actors to come out and comment on the Will Smith, Chris Rock debacle and go out on, uh, I forget what show, Good Morning America or something like that. Yeah. Um, And he brought up the point, you know, not to get too controversial on this podcast, we try to keep it light but he brought up the concept of when they were on stage that he was horrified that people still did a standing ovation for will smith in spite of that action and um I don't know. I thought it was brave of him to come out and talk about it. Yeah, he's uh, one thing I've always loved. And I'm glad that he's kind of been consistent in this is over the years, his his like moral compass always seems to be pointed in the right direction. And and he's, you know, he's such a uh, brilliant guy, not only as an actor, but like he's an amazing painter and like the way he sees the world and, and he sees kind of Hollywood for what it is. I totally relate to that. And, you know, obviously, you know, I wasn't sitting there. I don't know how the audience reacted in real time. And, and I saw it, you know, obviously in the replay as he did. But I think that what he's speaking to is almost like bigger than that moment. What he's really talking about is just, you know, Hollywood in general, which like really can, there's some great 
things that come out of Hollywood. There's great movies, there's great businesses, there's, you know, so much talent, but there's also, um, yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's a whole layer that is very like, very much not like that, where it's like corrupt or it's, um, you know, it's phony, you know, obviously, as people have known for many years, but, you know, to someone like him, who's willing to call it out, like, it's, it's nice when you hear that from someone who's actually in Hollywood. Well, it felt like he was pointing out that everyone likely had the shared sentiment that they shouldn't be standing up. And they responded that way because they felt they were supposed to, or that's what you should be on camera. And I think he pointed out the concept of people are just not valuing their opinions. They have a fear to sit down when they should sit down. And I thought it was it was cool. I didn't look back at the clip, though. I don't know if he was there or not. If he was there, I'm curious. I mean, I'm assuming he was sitting down. But most people looked like they were standing up. Yeah, it's funny. And I don't think he would have been there either this year because I don't know he's been I don't think he's in any films that would have been nominated but yeah it's true it's like I don't know people in general that's something that I've felt like outside of even Oscars or Hollywood it's it's just this idea that people follow what everybody else is doing and and like oftentimes like sometimes that's a good thing when everybody's doing the right thing but sometimes people are doing the wrong thing and and it just takes like you know, it's such a ripple effect where like one person can kind of, you know, do the wrong thing or respond in a way that's like not great. And then uh, the next person sees it. And then before you know it, um, there's like a crowd and that becomes kind of the, you know, the status quo. So I think that's kind of what we may have seen at the Oscars. And I also think like it's confusion. I think it's easy for everyone to kind of look back now and dissect it when we have like days to like, you know, really go through with a fine tooth comb. But again, in the moment, it's people are probably like, wait, is this real? Like it's it's so surreal. Nothing like that's ever happened. And also like, at least to me, like I grew up with Will Smith and Fresh Prince and all this stuff. And like, I've only thought of him as like, you know, I, I never thought of him as like someone, you know, who who might do something like that. So it's I think it, it also, you know, to give some people the benefit of the doubt who reacted a certain way, like they might have not been um, they they just might not have been able to even process it themselves. And they're like, OK, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, I did. I did have one thought about it, which was, you know, it, it's so easy to look at one action and then make a judgment of someone's character. But I really do have the belief system that you are the sum of both good and bad. And I think there is a testament to what Will Smith has accomplished. And I do think it matters when someone does make a wrong choice or do something of that nature. It does give value and credence to his character where I wouldn't be so quick to judge him and, you know, cancel him or whatever the outfall of this might be. He has done a lot of amazing things and I believe will continue to do that. But it's going to be interesting to see how people assess it and how they feel about him and you know is he still going to be able to do his thing or I think will he will be over it? No, I think he will. I think there have been people in Hollywood that have um done far worse things um and have later been <laughs> celebrated and and awarded, you know, at the Academy Awards. So I think that um yeah, I think someone said on I think on Twitter I saw somebody say 
I'm calling it now, like next year, Will Smith and Chris Rock are going to present together. And I feel like that's probably going to be it. That would be cool. Just because at the end of the day, like it was a crazy moment. It was out of character for him. But I think people know it's out of character. He's probably again, I don't, it's none of my business. Like he's probably going through some personal stuff that like I don't have any idea about. And it's not my place to comment on. But he, you know, he had a bad moment. And and I hope for his sake, he's not remembered by that because he's such a great actor. The film he was in, you know, he was so good in that movie. Movie. I don't know if you guys saw King Richard, but like King Richard, it was amazing. Yeah, like one it was of, amazing you film really earned that. And and I, you know, as obviously as much as uh, you have to feel worse, even really for Chris Rock than anyone in that situation, you still feel bad because that should have been like the best night of his life practically. And he kind of sabotaged mm-hmm. it for himself. And and obviously that sucks. So, you know, it's unfortunate. And yeah. um, and like I said, I I, I don't know. I, I try just not to past too much judgment because I don't know what happened and I'm just watching this like you know three minute clip that everybody's watching online and you know it it is what it Mm -hmm. is but you know crazier things have happened in Hollywood and uh and like I said a lot of those individuals have bounced back so I think Will Smith being the kind of box office like powerhouse that he is and the talent that he is um as long as this isn't like a pattern that continues to like turn into something different I I think we'll you know one day we'll be laughing about this and he will be too that's what I hope at least I I hope so too But to to bring it back to you and your projects, you mentioned you do a lot of narrative features, commercials, you've done a bunch of different projects. What's your favorite type of project to work on and and why? Well, I think my favorite type of project, I mean, the thing that I'm always trying to work toward are just my my own films. So narrative films that I'm writing and directing. And those aren't necessarily always the most like enjoyable projects, because in addition to directing, I'm also producing them. I'm also having, you know, even just the writing process, which at times I love, but at other times, it can be grueling, like any writer filmmaker will kind of uh, attest to it's it's just like, you know, it can be such a, a difficult thing to get through, but it's also so rewarding. Um, and I like that challenge. And I like that kind of payoff when you've kind of done something very difficult and like push yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, something I'm learning, and it's more about like a production style than anything, is that I'm learning that with narrative productions, um, the sweet spot is either something that's really, really, really micro budget or something that has a substantial amount of funding. But there's this middle ground that I've worked in as many other indie film- filmmakers have where it's, you know, you have a little bit of money, but it's not enough to do something really great. And it's not so little that you can be super scrappy and guerrilla and just kind of shoot it with friends. And that no man's land is something I'm trying to avoid because I find um, it just, yeah, you don't get the best of both worlds. You're kind of trying to emulate Hollywood or like a bigger, you know, uh, independent film formula in terms of the crew configuration and so forth. But like right now I'm doing this micro budget film and as a challenge to myself, I'm doing everything on myself. I'm rolling my own sound, my own DP. I've never done, like I've done these things individually, but never on a film. And it's already one of my favorite projects. And then next year, I'm going to raise funds for a much larger independent film. So, you know, exploring that is really kind of my favorite thing. But at the same time, I have fun doing all sorts of other stuff. Like I've shot, um, 
like fashion videos, which I love doing because they're kind of like music videos, but they usually actually have a budget. So, you know, like I shot one last year, um, like all in eight millimeter and it was like a banana Republic thing. And that was super fun. And, you know, I'm just anything where I'm able to kind of, uh, see the results like on a commercial project or a fashion project where it's instantly and you're shooting and then you get kind of like a month later, it's done. To me, that's also another kind of uh, winning project because the downside of feature films is you don't see the result of your effort for like two years, three years, uh, whereas these shorter form things you can kind of benefit from in the more immediate term. So, yeah, I don't know if that totally answers it, but that's, you know, th no, those are in the realm of what I'm into right now. Yeah. And you mentioned micro budget a few times. And for those who are listening, would you mind kind of explaining what classifies a film as micro budget and how you go yeah. about producing that rather than you know a big feature for sure so i think everyone has a different definition so sometimes you'll see in like the hollywood trades like variety or whatever they'll refer to a micro budget film but it has like a million dollar budget so to hollywood a micro budget film is like a million dollar movie um but really when i'm talking about or when most people are referring to it um it's like truly a bootstrap project where you know i would define it as like maximum a hundred thousand dollars but as little as zero or like $5,000. Um, and, and the smaller the budget is really the more exciting to me on that level, because if you're going to go small and you're going to go micro, then go as small as you can and lean into that and make that your thing and benefit from it again, as opposed to just trying to like make it a little bit more. And okay, if we get another few thousand bucks, we can do this or this or that. Um, so micro budget to me is all about uh, working around your resources, working uh, and embracing your extremely severe limitations to make something that is hopefully better than or more unique than or a story that you couldn't tell with more money because you don't have as many cooks in the kitchen, you don't have investors and producers kind of breathing down your neck saying, well, I have to approve this cut where you can't, uh, you know, show this character on screen or explore this theme because it's not, you know, something that has been like proven to be safe. So there's all these creative benefits of working on a micro budget level. Um, and even just like a practice from the practical side, like last weekend, I shot I finished the end of act one from the this new feature we're shooting. And it was literally me and a couple actors, we shot for, you know, eight hours a day, if that and we were just having fun, it felt like a few friends hanging out, we got way more shots than I would have got with a full crew like I normally have. Um, we got I think like as good, if not better audio, uh, just because we had more time and we could do things more. And, you know, again, I think it's not for everybody, but if you're technically um, skilled and comfortable behind the camera and you like, you know, wearing multiple hats, then it's definitely something worth pursuing. And for no other reason than the fact that, and this is kind of the whole reason like I have a podcast on micro budget filmmaking and share this stuff is because filmmakers always think that the way to get into Hollywood is to kind of like show you can do a Hollywood movie. So get a lot of money or, you know, um, you know, do a short film for like $100,000 and like, you know, and do some like crazy VFX spectacle or something. And, you know, that's happened. But more often than not, almost every time, if you look at any director you love, it's like you go down the list, like uh, pretty much every single director, other than those who kind of got in through nepotism, 
even back in like the 70s, 80s, 90s, like they were all breaking in through independent film, micro budget, scrappy, put it on a credit card, make a movie, take a risk. Because what producer is going to fund you for a movie if you've never made a movie? And how are you going to even know if you're worthy of that financing if you've never cut your teeth on something for like $5,000? You know, why is somebody going to give you $5 million? So um, so anyway, that's been kind of my my philosophy, I guess, overall. Yeah, I liked one of your tweets you tweeted the other day or the other month. And it was, it was something like, if you don't make movies with your friends now, you're not going to get funded to work with professionals later. So it's like, just make something and then that the funding and the professionalism and all of that will come. Yeah, and I think a lot of people think they wanna make movies, but they, they don't, or they don't actually know if they wanna make movies because they haven't made one yet. And only once you've made a film from end to end do you know is the process even for you? Like, do you like being on set? Are you somebody that manages people well? Can you, you know, kind of uh, help uh, almost like be a psychologist for like all these different personality types and help get the best out of them? And is that good for you? Are you good to them? Uh, and obviously you can always improve, but I, I think you know, when people resist making a film and they usually do it because they say, well, I want the budget to like make my film good. Well, you know, if Hollywood's proven anything, it's that budgets don't mean your film's going to be good. Like some of the highest budget films of all time are horrible. <laughs> and, you know, I, if you're going to fall on your face again, like I'd rather do it on a movie that like costs nothing. Um, and I also think if you're like a truly an artist, like if you're coming at it from a place of an artistic vision and you have this burning desire to create, nothing is going to stop you from making a movie. Like, you know, you'll be Richard Linklater filming himself acting in a movie on 16 millimeter in his apartment in Austin. Like that that's the spirit that it takes. Like Robert Rodriguez, mm -hmm. like Sean Baker, like the, these people, even Tarantino, it's like we think of him as this huge Hollywood director, but like he made you know, tiny movies for years that were never released. And he made a feature that was unfinished. And he made, um, you know, even Reservoir Dogs was like supposed to be a $30,000 movie. So uh, he ended up getting obviously more funding for it. But like, everybody that we admire kind of started like this because they couldn't help it. They had to create art. And if you're creating excuses not to make art because you don't have money, when in today's day and age, you can make a, a movie for basically for free if you want to with your phone and with your laptop, then you know, I, I think you have to ask yourself, like, why are you resisting creating when there is no barrier to entry anymore, except for your mm. own, you know, choice not to do it. So in terms of following that passion and finding your break, I mean, you've worked with some really incredible brands, Google, NBC, you know, Banana Republic, the list goes on. Was there a particular job that you did that got you your break? Was there a moment where you were like, okay, I think I, I'm good here. Like I have some momentum. Honestly, no, I wish there was. And, and it's really just been, it's all of the things again. So this goes back to like the micro budget filmmaking. So like all of the things that you think shouldn't help, you know, like doing a movie with your friends where nobody's getting paid and we're just getting pizza and we're, you know, making it up as we go along. Like those are the things where I end up meeting somebody who's like, Hey, can I, I help out? I just moved to LA. And then it's like, Oh, well, my, my friend just got a job at Google. I heard they're doing a video and you said you do commercials too. And it's all about like, 
to me, it's the whole business commercial side or, or film side. It's like it really is all about relationships. And it's easier to forge meaningful relationships through creative projects that are authentic, in my opinion, as opposed to, you know, going to some networking event and trying to pitch somebody on here's, you know, my production company and here are the clients we've worked with. Like, all of my best clients have either come out of a free thing that I've done with a friend who's like referred someone to me or a low budget thing that I've self-initiated. Um, or in some cases, let's say through my blog or website, which now is monetized, but um, had not been for many years and, and really is still just purely a passion project of mine to like share free content. So like some of my biggest jobs that have been in terms of like budget, at least like significantly uh, disproportionate proportionately higher than the kind of the average job that comes in the door. Um, some of those have just come through like a, a blog article I've posted and then somebody mm -hmm. sees it and hey, do you know anyone who does this? Oh, yeah, I actually have a production company and they trust you. And there's like a level of kind of built in, um, you know, authority or whatever you want to call it, where they feel like, okay, this is somebody that kind of knows what they're doing, or this is referred from a friend and not just some other one of 350 submissions coming in through my email today. Well, in terms of your blog and your podcast and your website, that's like an entirely different occupation outside of filmmaking, <laughs> just the maintenance of that and running that. Yeah. How did that come up? How did you stay consistent with it? Why do you think it's successful? We'd love to learn a bit more about that. Yeah, it's a great question. I think so I always like just sharing stuff like it was again, a lot of the things that have done the like whenever I try to have a strategy, it never works. And when I just kind of follow what I'm passionate about, or what I, I have fun with, it ends up working and kind of doing the things that I wouldn't even expect it to do. So that was kind of the case with the blog, I moved to LA. So I'm, I'm from Toronto, uh, originally. So and now I'm also an American citizen. But I was uh, when I moved only Canadian, and I had to uh, get a visa, basically. And I realized, uh, not only that, but I'm moving to a new city. When I land in LA, it's like, who is this guy? Like, if someone Googles me, nothing's going to come up. I better, like, create some sort of online presence. So Wait, I, I got to say one thing to you, and sure. I don't mean to cut you off. What's the deal, like, with Canada and us just getting such incredible people that come from there? Like, I mean, Elon Musk had a stint in Canada, Drake, <laughs> Justin <laughs> Bieber, <laughs> and now Noam Crow. It's like, what's going on here? What's well, going on with Canada? There's something in the, the ice water. That's the, probably the first and last time I'll ever be put in the same breath as Elon Musk. But I I appreciate that. Uh, but I think honestly what it is, it's not that there's anything and this applies to like people who move from other countries too. It's not that there's ever like some secret sauce. It's that it's so hard to move here, even from Canada, where it's probably a lot easier than other countries. Like it was very difficult. Like I had, to, I, you know, I had to, I spent like years preparing. And in, in a lot of ways, my career started like five years later than it would have if I was just born, you know, a few miles south in Buffalo, New York or whatever. Right. So it's like, it, it, for me, having to, uh, earn my place to even work in this country forced me to do all sorts of things I wouldn't have had to do otherwise. I had to like sharpen my skills. I had to start a blog, right? I had to, I didn't have to do that, but I chose to do that as an option. Um, I had to judge for film festivals. Like I had to network. I had to find a manager. Like it really kind of lit a fire that wouldn't have been there otherwise. You know, I've always been super motivated, but you know, it really puts you through the ringer. So when you get here, um, you know, one of the things I felt like when I first landed, and I've probably like, 
slipped way away from this, but I remember just on a technical level thinking like what's acceptable in like Canada is the standards in some ways for post-production were, were even higher than here, which I wasn't expecting only because there's like such little work there comparatively that it's more competitive. And like, you know, you really have to kind of know everything or be like the best at After Effects or whatever it is that you're doing. Whereas here, like you, there are people that are even better just because there's more people, but they're like the average baseline, I would say when I moved, it felt like the average like editor or After Effects artist, like probably wasn't as skilled because there's just an abundance of work for them. And they, you know, maybe weren't as challenged. So I think, you know, now that I've been here, I can even see like I've been able to you know, it, it's in some ways it's more competitive and otherwise it's less competitive. And that kind of changes, I guess, mm -hmm. how you operate. But but yeah, you know, the blog really and the podcast, too, it's like everything just started as, you know, I think this is something that would be fun. I'll try it. And, you know, with the blog, like I'll do 10 articles. If I don't like it, I'll quit. And I'm just so stubborn that like now it's like 10, 10 years later and I'm like, I'm still writing the articles and same with the podcast. I was like, I recorded, I never go into things with like a plan. Like I literally recorded the first podcast on my uh, balcony in my old apartment and just like on a zoom recorder outside. It probably sounds, I, I won't even listen to it back. Cause it probably sounds awful. <laughs> and I had no guests. I was just like rambling into the microphone and, uh, you know, and then I just kept doing it. And now I've met now some of like my best collaborators, which I didn't expect, but some of the best like filmmakers I know and the best jobs I've worked on came from people who found the podcast and they were like, hey, can can I be a guest? And then we became friends and, you know, now we work on things together. So it's, you know, it's it's just, I don't know, it's always just kind of following the fun and the playfulness as opposed to the the business strategy. That's awesome. And with everything going on, do you find yourself having, you know, a lot of creative blocks because you have all of these things going on? How do you set time aside for the creative stuff and then also like the business workflow stuff? Yeah, that's a great question too. So the artist's way, are, do you guys know the artist's way by Julia Cameron? I don't think so. So she... um this is something that many people, especially writers, but also like directors and even people outside the film industry love this book. But she was uh, married to Martin Scorsese. She wrote this brilliant book called The Artist's Way. And it's all about kind of unlocking your creativity. And um, I've read it. I read it a long time ago and I reread it recently. And it has these basically it has these tools that um, that genuinely do help you just be a better creative person in anything that you're doing. And one of the tools is is three longhand pages every morning. Like the first thing I do when I wake up uh, before, like I will not look at the phone. I will not like see if, you know, there's an issue with, you know, a payment that's late from a client or like any of these things that are going to throw me off my day. I keep that away. I take, I have a pen and paper beside the bed. I wake up and I write three longhand pages of uh, whatever it is that I need to just dump from my brain. Um, because really, you know, what the book teaches you and, and again, it's so, it's so many people I've met in Hollywood that have like actually done really great things, use these tools. And I really believe in them having, you know, doing them myself, but 
you know, a big part of it is your creativity is like, it's it's less about more, like what you're doing and it's more about what you're not doing. So if you're trying to be creative, you're already getting in your own way. Creativity happens when you're not trying. You have to open the door in your mind to the, you know, unknown and to, you know, something that can inspire you or spark a new idea. And you can't do that when in the back of your mind, it's like, oh, I've got to pay this bill and like, oh, this happened. And, you know, what if my writing is like, like, you know, not good today. And like, what if I'm not a good filmmaker? And what, you know, you have all this self doubt. So it's like, first thing in the morning, like, get that out. And like, as soon as that gets out of your system, everything you do after you do it long enough, it's not a perfect, like silver bullet where every day is like magical. Um, but it works well enough that most days are are genuinely better than they would be if you're not doing that. So by kind of clearing the mental space, everything that you do, even if it's just like driving to the grocery store uh, to go and whatever, pick something up that you need for dinner, um, it becomes lighter and more playful and you start to see and be more receptive to creative ideas. Um, because again, it's about like creativity is to me at least, and I think to many people is about like you are an antenna and like you're pulling ideas out of the universe. They're not coming from your logical brain. They're coming from some other place that you're filtering and, you know, you have to be able to, you know, like I watched, this is a funny thing to kind of bring into it, but I watched the uh, Beatles documentary recently, Get Back. I don't know if you guys saw that. And like, I'm a huge Beatles fan. And it's like, you think, okay, so like they're writing some of their most famous, iconic songs, like Let It Be and all these songs. And like, the way they're doing it is like so casual and so playful. And it's like, they're laughing and they're making funny voices. It's like, they're not taking it seriously. Like, they're not thinking, oh, we're going to sit down and write music that's going to be around like 250 years from now. But that's what happened because they were playful, you know? And so I think these tools like morning pages is what they call them in the book, um, are a great vessel to kind of get anybody into a more creative headspace. Um, and I don't know if that answers, though, you were also asking about like balancing the business stuff. But I, you know, in some ways, it applies to the business, too. But I'm happy to kind of separately, I guess, expand on that, too. Well, I wanted to identify really quickly a super important point that you were making, which is the idea behind discipline opens up creativity, which almost sounds counterintuitive. Yeah. It's if you limit yourself or you limit your actions and you limit the way that you experience the world or alter it, you can actually enable yourself to be more receptive to the creative nature that you have within you. So it sounds like a lot of the things in the book revolved around that idea of enabling you to be in touch with your creative side. Is that a fair yes. assessment? Yeah, 100%. That's exactly it. It's like, um, yeah, I think you put it so well. And, and I think anyone can really tap into that. It's just a matter of, of understanding. It's so counterintuitive to what you think. Like you said, discipline, you think like, oh, that's like not fun. And that's not playful. And it's like, but no, if you if you choose the right things, like if you're disciplined in the right way, and most of us are disciplined in ways like we don't realize, like our bad habits, like we're plenty well disciplined with them. Like if we, you know, mm -hmm. drink too much coffee or if we go out at night too long with friends or if we're not like doing this, like those are things that like those block you because like not coffee specifically, but it's like <laughs> the bad habits that get in your way. Um, those are the things that block you and, and you're just as disciplined in those. You just don't feel it because you've been doing it for so long. So, you know, mm -hmm. like exercise is another example. Like if you have a day and you wake up, you write three longhand pages, whatever you write, like even in the book, it says, just write like 
I don't want to write this today. It doesn't matter what it is. Just write, 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 get it off. Um, then go, you know, uh, do a workout. Like I'll sometimes spend three, four hours before I do a single piece of work because I'd rather have three hours at the end of the day where I do really amazing work as opposed to eight hours where I'm kind of like, I don't know what to do. Let me go back on Twitter and, uh, you know, okay, I'll write another page, but I don't feel good about this. Like it's the quality, not the quantity. So for a creative mm -hmm. person and a business person to prime yourself is key. That's why so many business owners and CEOs and executives, they meditate, they do yoga, they are extremely rigid with their routines. Um, and there's a reason because that gives them the competitive edge that they need in business. It's the same with creativity. Um, and to, mm -hmm. to the other thing about discipline, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from Stephen King, who has this quote, and I'll, I might butcher it, but it's something like, you know, amateurs uh, sit around and wait for inspiration, the rest of us just get to work. And that's it. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, if you work, like pretend like you're your own studio head, and every day you show up and you sit down at your desk. And you know, if the boss, you're you as your own boss has to say, like, we're making a movie, like, you've got to get three pages done today, or we're off track to make this movie. If you don't have that voice inside your head, uh, then you're going to end up defaulting to kind of like working for somebody who's going to put that voice in your head, and they're going to just make you work on their projects, which is fine, mm -hmm. too. But if that's not what you want to do, you have to find a way to cultivate, I think, some kind of routine and discipline. Um, and within that, you'll find more playfulness, I think, and more fun and creativity than you could find any other way. You know, one of the, the themes that we've been noticing with speaking with people like you, we spoke with Shannon Wilde, National Geographic cinematographer, Danny Durr, the gaffer on Euphoria, and the list goes on. And there's always this theme of all of the creatives coming on saying that the work that you do that's free or um, random or, or spontaneous or fun, or you're, you're not necessarily achieving like that notable marker for what you're doing. It's just something that you don't have any anticipation will lead to something else, but you're doing out of passion has oftentimes linked to one or more of their successes. And it's so interesting because people, they see like the shiny light of what they want to be. And then they try to go from here to doing that thing, as opposed to putting in the work to earn doing that thing. All the people who do it, you won't really understand what they had to do to get there, but it's all of the free projects. It's the thousands of hours of looking stupid and then refiguring it out. It's the random person that you met on set. And it's just so cool to hear you attest to it as well, because it's such a common theme with everyone we talk to. Yeah, no, you bring up like such a great point just to reinforce that. And I think to add to it as well, I would say a big part of it is like learning how to fail and be okay with that. And I know it's kind of a cliche at this point. Everyone says like, you have to, you know, fail well, and there's all these expressions. But again, it's, it's, it is a cliche, because it's true. And I think that you know, how do you learn how to make a great film if you haven't made a bunch of bad ones? Like nobody just wakes up. Hitchcock made dozens and dozens and dozens of films that not a single person that I know could name before he was, you know, in his 50s when he had his golden era and he started doing Vertigo and Psycho. And, you know, 55, I think, to 65 was like when he was in his prime. And, you know, who can name like the silent films that he did in the 1930s or like 20s or whatever? We don't 
you know, but today it's like everyone expects like immediate success. We love the overnight success story. Um, but yeah, you just, you know, I think you have to fail and you have to learn how to be comfortable with criticism and how to uh, kind of almost like use it to make yourself better and to see it as an opportunity to improve as opposed to, you know, and again, this like goes back to putting too much pressure on one project, like the micro budget filmmaker who makes a no budget, like movie basically, and gets criticized. It's like, it's going to hurt a lot less than if somebody bet $100 million on your first movie. And you know, all of Hollywood is like, oh, you're never going to work in this town again. So it's like, mm -hmm. learn, like, just like you're building your skill of creativity and of filmmaking, you want to build up that skill of um, how do you deal with failure? How do you deal with criticism? How does that make you better and more resilient? And, mm -hmm. um, and how do you remember that you hate that feeling? So the next time around, you're going to do whatever you're doing a lot better. And I think if you you have those things like if you have the discipline to create your own work at all costs and um you can kind of let things roll off your back when there's like negativity but also accept like constructive criticism when it's valid i think if you can do that you're you're going to succeed like it's just inevitable it's just a matter of what you choose to do with it at a certain point yeah i mean essentially you have to work hard for easy you yep. put in the work yep. now you put in the rules around it and then at a certain point it will come easier but this beginning space is not supposed to be easy you got to earn it hundred percent. And again, another cliche, but like I'm writing an article on this now. It's like in people always say, enjoy the process, enjoy the process. Well, if you're a filmmaker, the process is your life. Like making one film might take you three years, like end to end might take you 10 years. And like uh, the, the moment where you like maybe get an award or maybe get into a festival uh, will last for like a flash. And the rest of it is your life that you're living. So it's like, do you want to live in a headspace where you constantly like, feel drained and negative and like you're you know it, it's just enjoying the process literally allows you to enjoy your day-to-day -day. and i think that makes you more likely to make more films because look how many first-time filmmakers never make another movie like the statistics i think it's something like 80 or 90 percent of filmmakers who have directed a movie never directed another movie um so wow. uh you know there's a reason for that so Anyways, you know, I, again, I don't know if this answers any of these topics or questions, but just things that I think are but worth sharing. we keep sharing. it light here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we keep it light. Yeah. You know, we just free flow. We're figuring it out as we go. That's good. That's good. That's that's the way to do it. That's the theme of the uh, episode. Yeah. And speaking of kind of this ever-changing industry, there's so many innovations happening right now. So I want to know what excites you most about filmmaking right now? It's a good question, you know, because if you asked me like five years ago, I would have said, I love that you can just make a movie that looks like a real movie and it doesn't have to cost you a lot of money. You can have $5,000 and it can look incredible. I think what excites me most personally is I think the intersection now of like business and creativity, because I think that a lot of creative people have been over the years taught that it's one or the other. But I think that, uh, you know, the best CEOs, and the best business people are creative and the best filmmakers have a business mind. And I think that people are starting to get that. So it's not like this isn't about like technology or like where the industry is going or anything like that. It's more about where the world is going. And that I think a lot of filmmakers who felt like they had to be put into a box and felt like there was only one path for them. They don't have to feel like that anymore. Like they could be like, 
by no means do they have to take my path, but like they could, they could be someone that has their own business, um, has e-commerce stores and has a blog and that allows them to make films whenever they want. And like, maybe some of those films, uh, will be bigger and maybe some are smaller, but they get to explore. Like that's an option. You don't have to take the path that you used to have to take as a filmmaker and, you know, making films are more accessible than ever. So I think as a whole, that's what's exciting to me. I think we're going to see a lot of very um, unique creative voices that will emerge from this that maybe couldn't have broken in through like Sundance or through getting an agent at CAA, but they'll find their own way to break in because they build an audience and they um, they find a way to connect with that audience and monetize the audience or uh, learn from that audience in terms of like how to make their work better better. So, uh, you mm. know, I think as a whole, that that's what excites me. I mean, everyone's writing the screenplay to their life, essentially, their career. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it, it's very true. And uh, speaking of your screenplay to your life, how would you identify yourself um, in terms of your, let, let me re-say re the question. You, you're a jack of all trades in filmmaking. You do color grading, you know, director, cinematographer. What would you identify yourself as the most? What do you think you're, you're the most skilled at? And is there... Um, something that you're more interested in than other roles yeah um well the thing i'm most like genuinely connected to is is the directing because i love working with actors and my favorite part of the process is like just the rehearsals you know and just talking through scenes and seeing actors like take something that was okay on the page or decent on the page and make it really great but in terms of how i identify i would say i'm a filmmaker i don't say I'm a director, I don't say I'm a DP or a colorist, I'm a filmmaker. And it's because my biggest skill is being a jack of all trades. And that sounds like funny, but someone once said like, uh, you know, on another podcast, someone asked me like, are you more of a, a generalist or a specialist? I said, I specialize in being a generalist. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, um, and, and again, like there's plenty of things I'm not good at. So I don't want to sound like I'm tooting my own horn. Like there's plenty of things I'm not good at. And even the things I'm okay at, like I could list a hundred people that are better than me at all of them. But one thing that is unique to what I do is not many filmmakers, including those on the Hollywood level, um, even if they wanted to, could go and let's say grab a camera and a microphone and no crew and make a movie that looks good and make a movie that has like a good story. They might write a better script. They might have a better cinematography. They might have a better, each individual component might be better. I don't know. But what I what I think few can do, at least on the Hollywood level, is do everything. And that's my thing, because as an artist, I like to... Um, and, and not always there's projects where I want to be ultra collaborative and I want to be kind of a small cog in the machine, but on these micro budget projects, like I'm, you know, I want to kind of be the auteur of those films. That's the whole point. And like, and, and I think, you know, what my specialty is sort of doing it all and not doing and doing it in a way that, um, uh, it's maybe not always perfect, but no film is, but doing it in a way that works for me and furthers my goals. So, um, again, I, I think it's like back to that idea of like specializing in generalism, but like, that's kind of what I do. <laughs> and if you had to kind of say what your favorite, like running gun setup might be the type of equipment that you typically use and favorite editing software, what are some of the things that have served you well as a filmmaker? Yeah. So, I mean, I just like to use whatever is going to be easiest for 
what I'm trying to achieve. So I, I have multiple cameras. I have an Alexa all the way down to like an iPhone. I have DSLRs and mirrorless cameras. And I've got, you know, basically the tool for whatever job that might kind of come across my plate. But most of the time, um, like this feature I'm shooting right now, I'm shooting it on, I'll break down like the technical gear, like a Fuji X-T4. That's not a camera most people are using. I like it because it has great color science and uh, I know that it works well for like my stylistic purposes and needs. It's also tiny, so I can shoot gorilla style and I can go walk around, you know, uh, the beach or a motel or wherever, and I can shoot a movie and nobody would know. Um, that has more value to me than my Alexa, which, you know, sure, you know, they're shooting Game of Thrones on that camera or whatever, but um, I can't shoot my movie the same way on that camera. I'm going to get three shots instead of 10. So gear wise, yeah, I like, you know, obviously, I, I love the Alexa for when it, it, it is relevant, but I love the Fuji X-T4. Um, I love, you know, I have a whole blog post on like how I'm shooting this film with a Shinobi monitor. You know, I challenge myself to do it as as small and like inexpensive basically as I could. Um, so th that's some gear that I like on the post side. I, you know, I can use all the editing software. I have all of them because for clients I need them. But again, like Final Cut Pro, uh, people hated on it for so long. I'm all for it. Like the easier it is <laughs> to get out of the way, like let me create. I don't want to spend 45 minutes trying to load Adobe Premiere and then my whole computer melts down when I could have like edited three scenes by then. Like, I, you know, just because somebody else told me it was more professional doesn't mean that it is. What's professional is a finished movie that's well done and the tool almost doesn't matter but for me final cut pro gets out of the way more often than not for color i use davinci resolve and yeah i mean i use after effects and premiere and uh avid even and other tools when i need to but um yeah it's usually final cut for narrative stuff and this is actually a perfect segue to our first question in our next segment we like to call rapid fire so i'm just gonna ask you a few really fun questions and we'll try to be as quick as we can but usually yeah no no worries we're a little long-winded the first one is you only i know you use a bunch of cameras but you only get to use one camera for the rest of your life which camera would you choose? But it's a 16 millimeter camera. So I own a 16 millimeter SR2, uh, which is great, but uh, I would probably upgrade to the 416, which is like the state of the art 16 millimeter cinema camera. That'll just always be timeless. I love it. And what is the weirdest request you've received or outrageous request from a client or talent on set? Ooh. Uh, there's a quite a few. I'm trying to think of which ones I, I can <laughs> share or should share. Um, I'll say one thing that might be helpful because it's not as going to be like funny or outrageous or anything, but I think it might be helpful is like I've had multiple times actors that I've booked for films, even that are like supposed to be big roles in films, um, want to kind of like request, hey, can I not show up tomorrow? Because um, I have, you know, I want to audition for a commercial for like, I don't know, like toaster strudels or like whatever it is. And it's it's like, there's nothing wrong with that. I get everyone has to make a living, but I feel like anyone who's committed to a project, you got to be committed to it. So like any request is not, to me, it's like not weird. If someone's like, hey, I can't do my best performance. If I, if I, you know, I feel depressed this morning, I need you to go and pick me up like whatever. And it's going to make me feel better. Like, I don't care. It's just like the commitment to the project. When people request something that's going to throw that off, that's always like caught me more off guard. So 
Uh, yeah, I, I again, I don't know if that answers it, but I'm I'm trying. No, no, it does. And last one, what is the motto that you live by? Hmm, the motto, it would probably be and there's a lot. I actually printed when I had my office in downtown, I printed all these like uh, lyrics from like songs like I, I used to listen to and I still listen to a lot of like punk music and there's a lot of uh, uh, you basically just do your own thing do it yourself and I think one in particular would probably be uh, you know just march to the beat of your own drum and be yourself and lean into what you're great at like one of the reasons I loved all those bands and all the punk music is like they didn't know how to sing or play guitar but like they <laughs> figured out how to make these amazing songs that like reached people all over the world and um and I think that's it it's like be you and like don't try to be someone else don't try to emulate and what anybody else is doing just kind of take you know what you're good at and just kind of unapologetically lean into that and I think only good things can come from it and in terms of the things you're unapologetically leading into, proud of that transition, what are some of the <laughs> projects that you're currently working on? And is there anything that you think anyone in the community can help out with? Should they reach out to you? And yeah, just share with us what you have going on in your life. For sure. So yeah, right now I'm, I'm busy in production. We're shooting this feature, uh, doing a few days at a time. Um, so that's something if people want to follow along, they can check out my blog, knowimcurl.com or you know, Instagram or whatever, I'm sure you guys can leave some links in the show notes. And then, um, you know, I'm also running this filmmaking community, the back lot. So that's something I'm putting a lot of time into That's separate. That's is essentially an extension of my blog. But um, it's a community for filmmakers where we meet monthly, we do live meetings. Um, it's to help people kind of like network and make their own projects. Um, I do like giveaways, I introduce uh, people and have networking events and this and that. So that's something I'm putting a lot of time into uh, as well. So people can find that on on my website as well. Um, and and yeah, and I'm spending a lot of time on my Cinecolor brand, which is post-production tools and assets, which has grown. This has become like a whole, you know, revenue stream that I, I didn't think would exist, but a few years ago, but now it's like a huge kind of part of my day-to-day -day life. So if people want to check out any of those tools, they can uh, hit up Cinecolor.io and kind of take a look at some of the, the tools that we have on there. We're working on like AI plugins and things for color that are much in the future but I'm, I'm excited to kind of share more on that front soon. Man, you are a busy guy. <laughs> um, well, 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 Noam, it's been such a privilege getting to speak with you. And thank you to our incredible audience for tuning in. To contact Noam, you can DM him on Instagram at his handle, Noam Kroll, and as well as all the other links to all the various projects that he is working on. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for having me. Of course. And thank you again, everyone, for tuning into the Film Up podcast. I'm your host, Christina. And I'm Arye. Stay tuned for our next episode dropping every Tuesday until next time. Mm -hmm.